Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air here in suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We're on cue. It forgot if it's still summer or if fall is happening yet. That happens here every year. But in case you need to know, it is Thursday, September 17th, 2020, or the Thursday after the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, if you're counting, and also in between the fall ember days as a little treat. You see, the church calendar is vehemently convinced that it is now autumn tide, <laughs> fall ember days. Uh, also, it's, it's the ember days after the Feast of the Holy Cross, and if you're a Star Wars fan interested in what the crucifixion might mean to Star Wars, go back all the way to my very second episode where I, or second or third episode where, where I just go for it and Darth Vader as an icon of the crucifixion. Um, but for now, I'm joined as always by the greatest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2. Say hello, R2. And again, my trusty water bottle. Again, I'll remind you, Hydration is salvation, and that's no baptism joke. All right, take us away. Now, tonight we're picking up on some more thoughts on Claudia Gray's Master Apprentice and adding some more insights on the character of Qui-Gon Jinn and how his own role expresses themes of prophecy found in the scriptural canon. And I'll make a few little allusions to prophetic characters in the Bible, but just the thought of what prophecy entails inevitably i'll end up going talking about obi-wan and the rest of the skywalker saga too especially obi-wan in uh, master and apprentice the master and the apprentice of course just a heads up uh what i'm planning for future episodes i will talk about rael avaros uh named of course very openly about uh named after averroes ibn rushed Rushed, uh, I'm not entirely sure where, how he fits with Rail's character. I'd be curious to hear Claudia Gray's own thoughts on that. But uh, I will mention the character himself or, or do an episode ultimately on him, I believe. I think I might. I will definitely do a foray into all the enumerated prophecies that I am keeping track of, what page they're on in the book. Um, and it's interesting that we get them, right, in this book. And... Uh, so I'll, I'll do a bit of a what the prophets, how we interpret the prophecies themselves, and maybe guess a little bit on what what each of them are referring to. And I have to show some love and very timely love to Helen Azuka and her art protest group, who we can all agree are the real prophets here. I mean, come on, art prophecy uh, or art resistance, art protest. Really great <laughs> and really timely, um, and I'll get into that in a few weeks. Tonight, uh, I will talk a bit about Qui-Gon's show of restraint as a prophetic act, as the title suggests. But first, I'm introducing a new bit called The Pull List. And so tonight, no, I won't go into, in case you're wondering, into the Mandalorian trailer, as awesome as that is. If you want a great reaction to that, I'm certain... I know the, the fine folks at Star Wars Underworld and elsewhere are going to give some excellent coverage. I know uh, Star Wars Explained, Star Raptor have videos on that too. Just a bit of a few shoutouts. Uh, as for me, I'm going to stay in my lane and talk about Qui-Gon Jinn. 
and also a bit of comics because oh wait I'm doing a bit <laughs> um, I'm introducing a bit again so uh, take a swig of water and I'll go into what that's about so it's called the pull list and what the idea there is you know every Wednesday we buy our comics and every Monday uh, I, I read comics on Monday so um, you know that I'll be a bit behind uh, on what they come out. I know people t like to write the article and the think piece on, oh, this big thing happened in this comic on Wednesday, and I don't read the comic until Monday. Uh, that means is that you and me will have more time to digest when I sit down to record and you sit down to listen. Uh, a lot of great Star Wars comics still ongoing. You know, the Vader series taking place after Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars, Charles Star Wars ongoing series. Um, your Dr. Afro series, all of these really, uh, all three hitting on all cylinders, I, I think. Um, all set after Empire Strikes Back. And a few reasons why I want to introduce this bit. Uh, they're a bit of a less, comics are a bit of a less noticed corner of canon and of fandom, I think. Even though they, you know, driving Comic Con, but the actual print comics or digital single issues or however you can you consume them. They're a bit dwindling, and that's unfortunate. That is what it is. You know, the pandemic really uh, may accelerated a lot of things there, but it's part of my own fandom and part of my own weekly pattern of life. It's part of my Sabbath, uh, Sabbath, well, what's the word? Exercises, discipline, Sabbath discipline, to sit down and read a comic book or a few comic books and. So that's why they're on Mondays usually. Um, a lot of really great gems in the Star Wars canon have come in those comic books. And people are either sleeping on them or just reading them secondhand or reading about them secondhand. Um, and so I want to talk about them more. Uh, another reason is, this is, and again, another bit to get ready for the High Republic takeover in January. And I will definitely be going into the Marvel book by Kevin Scott and the IDW Adventures book by Danielle Jose Older. Both promise to have important, impressive contributions to th this great event that I am deeply invested in already. <laughs> but tonight I'm not talking about Star Wars. I'm talking about Marvel's other property, the Marvel Universe, which I have talked about a few times before. Uh, namely, I'm going to talk about the Empire event that concluded last week. Um, yeah, it concluded last Wednesday with Empire number six. And uh, some things were delayed because of the, the shutdown. But uh, then there were, there were some Fallout books, uh, Aftermath books, that came, single issues that came out. Um, and, and so, yeah, Empire uh, is a crossover event gathering all these uh, different characters in. And Marvel does this now pretty much every year. Uh, and a lot of people are saying it's going to be too much. They're doing it for the sake of it. Um, doing it because they, they need, they're trying to have some sort of MCU-esque coherence. Like, oh, that sells in the theater, so let's let's do this event uh, in the comics too. Otherwise, people get confused. What's what do I read? What do I pick up? Uh, previous events like 
like the first Civil War, which I haven't read. I have it, but um, you know, the, in the Infinity thing and uh, the first Civil War and Civil War Two. I did read Civil War Two, and I liked it more than most people. Those were interesting. Those did actually go into the meaning of the the Marvel universe as a whole and really saying something. This time, it really felt like. With Empire, uh, Marvel did a, a crossover event, or a crossover event for the sake of it, um, and the reason I say that is because they could have said so much more. So, what Empire? What what happening there is the Kree and the Scrolls have allied against this common enemy uh, called the Kotadi, who are plant-based, sentient plant-based life forms, and the battleground, of course, is always Earth, and. Ultimately, the Kotati end up being this big bad that just wants to wipe out uh, human and organic carbon-based life on whatever life forms were carbon-based life on Earth. And again, the big bad, big bad that our heroes have to just defeat, right? But they could have said so much more. I mean, what? Just think about what could possibly cause a group of sentient plants to have a gripe against human inhabitants on earth i'll give you one guess <laughs> um they could have said something a lot about global warming and about uh human the human involvement in the creation of fossil fuels and the greenhouse effect and uh the amazon and right now with the timing about you know, the forest fires out west again raging in the, the apocalyptic skies um that we've uh we we have not let or yeah what i want to say that we have gotten the way of ensuring that our forests and our air has the way to resist uh, when forest fires happen when droughts well, well to have healthier rain cycles and, and the science that i'm not a bit i'm not fully clear on but um we've weakened our own lived environment and so you know we could have this comic could have explored that could have explored how our own technology and our own power has done that but instead for the most part just the cortadio this big bat they have to de defeat uh Carol, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, she does explore this to somewhat in her own run. And I'm grateful that I'm continuing to read read that by Kelly Thompson. Excellent comic book. Continues to, again, firing on all cylinders here. Uh, in, a, in a smaller scale, the temptations of power and technology. She's actually made the Kree accuser. That you see, for example, with uh, uh, Ronan the accuser in the MCU. She's made the Kree accuser and has all this power, but she uh, she faces the temptation of power and the technology of the accuser staff too that could destroy and corrupt. And so Carol shows us how to resist this by breaking up the component parts of the staff into her team, Carol Core, uh, including I think Rhodey and a few others. Um, can't quite remember who I think. Is Jessica Jones one of the two? Hazmat, uh, Spider Girl, uh, and her 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 group of friends, and together they're able to actually find the truth about 
what what a certain set of circumstances is going on and um it's interesting explorers then how to actually build community and found family and in found family as in she finds someone who is literally her half sister <laughs> and uh yeah how that enriches everyone's life so ultimately i think i, I ended up reading empire or at least the, the the benefit to empire was so i knew what the heck was going on in the captain marvel series for a spell and Fair enough. Okay. It was an interesting little side quest for Carol to be the Kree accuser, but she ends up not continuing that role because she's left that behind in a lot of ways. She hasn't left her own Kree identity behind. She's still actually just exploring it more now, but uh, she's, she's an Avenger. She's, you know, half Kree, but in the comics very much still cares about her human family and her her human friends and um, yeah what is happening on earth so so that, that's empire and captain marvel um now there's a whole bunch of star wars books uh coming up this week that i will get into next week but for now i will leave it that with empire i'm going to take another swig of water And get into the main topic here. So, Qui-Gon's restraint. And, uh, and this builds on, this is actually born out of a few things I, I wanted to say more. But, you know how you're, you're in the flow of something you just forget. Some points you want to make. Uh, so, I've actually trying something different here. I've, I have bit, This episode's a bit more scripted, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, try making sure I, I hit these points. Um. It builds on Qui-Gon's realism, but the, the restrained aspects of it. And for that, we have to turn to the various royal court scenes that uh, we see throughout Master Apprentice. We see Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan appearing before the Jedi Council and in the Chancellor's office and uh, in the Pajali court with Princess Fanry and with Rael and... Uh, in all these, we hear Qui-Gon's internal monologue and what he's thinking about, what he cares about, and, and he can do more more than one thing. And I, I see two aspects that are coming to the fore here. You know, the first is his own self-criticism, and then the second is how even in those scenes, he can still, even as a prophet, he can still play the game. Um, last week, I mentioned... That one of the things he's call, constantly calling the Jedi to is humility, and it would be in in, in it, well I won't I won't put it negatively. It is absolutely necessary if you're calling other people to humility that you have to be humble yourself. And part of what humility might mean then is you know the most realist person Qui Gon is, the, mo the person he is most realist with is himself. And this is especially when it comes to his mentorship of Obi-Wan. Um, his internal monologue when it comes to Obi-Wan, it, it's almost self-chastising. It's not just self-critical or realist. It's, oh, I'm going to keep on letting this kid down, <laughs> right? Uh, there's an amazing moment where he sees Obi-Wan react emotionally to something. And 
you know, we think he's going to be chastising Obi-Wan for it. And maybe he does, to some extent, have a criticism to raise there. But ultimately, he has the self-awareness to think, and we see him think something along the lines of, you know, I'm the one who should know better. I'm a 40-year-old adult, and he's just a 17-year-old kid. I should train him better. And that constantly comes up. I should be training him better. I've let him down in my sacred duty as a master to a Padawan, which he says is as uh, well, as sacred, as vital, as meant to be upheld as any other task a Jedi Master does or a Jedi Knight does. Um, and And so he's able to turn this back on himself and this train of thought you know, I should train him better this train of thought as a pun it, it comes to him right at the very beginning we see him uh, in, in the beginning this uh, combat situation where they're infiltrating this hut cartel and there's this misunderstanding that happens and Obi-Wan uh, thinks he means this whole platform but you know he means the, a specific thing on the door Whatever the details are, um, he yeah he he probably you know is disappointed and frustrated that Obi Wan doesn't get it, but he channels that frustration into saying, "I haven't uh, given him that awareness yet. I have that awareness because I'm forty years old, older, and experienced. Again, he's just a kid. I'm responsible for handing that on." Depending on that wisdom, um, the oh, painful moment in the Jedi Council, not the Jedi, the Chancellor's office, where uh, the Chancellor Kai Kaj, I can't, don't know how, what her name's pronounced, but the Chancellor says, "Oh, and I'm sure, blah blah blah." When you join the Jedi Council, and of course, Qui Gon hasn't told Obi Wan yet that. He's been offered a seat on the council, and Qui-Gon is incredibly embarrassed. And yet another, oh, I failed this kid, <laughs> right? Um, because I've been too hesitant, because he hasn't maybe sufficient, been sufficiently realist or, um, yeah, realist or prophetic enough to say, uh, you know, is he chastising himself for upholding the Jedi Council as a greater honor or, or caring about the honor of being on the Council than uh, the importance of, of training Obi-Wan and the, that sacred duty. Um, you know, and, and this the sense of I haven't done him good. I, I, I've actually I've let the kid down. Can you when Obi-Wan questions uh, Pax and Rahara? Right, one see Qui Gon sees what he's doing, knows what he's doing there, um, with incorporating. This is as far as I've gotten into the book. I'm at the end of chapter sixteen, so page one forty four, around there. Uh, Qui Gon has incorporated them into his mission, and Obi Wan doesn't quite get it, and has all these questions and hesitations, uh, but. Is disappointed himself. Oh, he he. Obi Wan doesn't have that sense of flexibility yet. But 
you know, that relates to his respect of the difference between him and Obi-Wan that I discussed last week. You know, Qui-Gon does respect the importance of rules and is able to say, okay, what if Obi-Wan's way is better or more important or more valuable or more for Obi-Wan? And, and it's my duty as his master. Really, the word I'm getting at here is my duty, Qui-Gon says, my duty as master to build him up in his particular vocation. That may be different from mine, but that vocation from the will of the force or whatever is real and is important. And uh, so so he he wants, Koyan wants to instill in Obi-Wan a way of doing this better. Right? He doesn't want to break Obi-Wan's moral high ground, right? He respects that. Um, he doesn't want to break the sense of, well, actual thieves and actual terrorists and violence is wrong. Um, but he does want to see, he does want Obi-Wan to see there are different routes to that morally higher goal. And, uh, I mean, that's the thing. I, my thought there is quite gone. Come on, take it. Give yourself a break here, right? Like you're, <laughs> again, this kid's only 17. It takes time to learn to ease up. It takes time to learn to have that flexibility. And, um, and I think one of, maybe from what I maybe recall is one of the, things Qui-Gon is able to grow in himself is this sense that his patience with Obi-Wan. Maybe this uh, self-chastisement is, I mean, it is impatience with himself. It's a constant reminder, a realist reminder that Obi-Wan is just not going to get it yet. <laughs> right? uh, he's just not going to be... In that place where he can use more nefarious, quasi-nefarious means, right? We know he will. We know, just thinking right now, that the Reiko Hardin thing, right? How that's exactly the type of thing Qui-Gon would have done. Gone, disguised himself as a bounty hunter in the underworld and got undercover. He didn't like it, but he totally did it, and he did it amazingly. And he uncovered this whole plot against Palpatine. Um, but you know, seven, you know, thirty. However, Obi Wan is at that point. Yeah, he does that and goes for it. Seventeen-year-old Obi Wan would be horrified, <laughs> right? Um, now, as an aside, Claudia Gray is a master at payoff. Um, so last week or the week before, I read a quote about Qui Gon's very realist willingness to. Bring people who may be below the law into his mission. Just a sense that above the law and below the law. This is, this is a prophetic theme. You know, Martin Luther King, to some extent, even getting at this. Well, he gets at this maybe in a different direction. But um, a law is morally justified by its actions and by, by its effects. Right? A bunch of jewel thieves... Um, aren't really causing anybody much harm. So Obi-Wan has this moral repugnance to bring them in. Qui-Gon, uh, 
not so much, right? You know, okay. Uh, they're there. He needs them. Needs people who are skilled at searching and foraging and, and exploring uh, to continue his mission to search for Hanazuka's group on the moon. Um, and, and that's something that Jin's instinct will prove crucial in discerning the moral value of Azuka's means and ends ends and means and as well as grappling with the complexities of Avaros's past and present right. um, just, just you know Claudia Ray she names this analysis and then actually shows it to us right it's good great storytelling <laughs> put it that way okay I'm going to take a bit of swig of water and we'll have some R2 And then I'll get to the second point that I, I mentioned before. The second thing that comes out of his, uh, the, the court scenes, if you will. Qui-Gon, believe it or not, can play the courtly political game. Right? We, we think of a prophet, and we think of a prophet in terms of John the Baptist, right? Which I have very much tied Qui-Gon to. But we think of... A prophet is solely someone who, like the Savonarola, just bull in a china shop, goes in and is only about well, Jesus in the temple. Uh, we think that's all it is, right? Bull in the china shop goes in and and goes on a, a tear, right? Isaiah, you know, announces the people their rebellion. Um, both in scripture and with Qui-Gon, we see so much more, right? We see much more layers, more layers here. In those courtly scenes, you know, despite Obi-Wan's more emotive responses, we also see a lot of Qui-Gon displaying very depth, uh, depth, deft, sorry, deft calculation, calm restraint, a mature familiarity with procedural niceties. He knows that he has to obey the Chancellor and the Council. He he's still he's committed to being a part of the Republic and the Jedi Order, right? Uh, even if he has concerns about about all of them, right? Mont's reforms. Even if he has concerns about Avaros, he knows he can carry out his mission to seek out whatever this this threat to Fanry's life might be. Um, and he's at, at the point I'm reading here. He's still willing to go along with that belief, with that assertion that Helen Azuka and, and her her group represent a mortal threat to Princess Fenry. These are terrorists. You know, maybe we don't know what he's thinking internally, but there, but he's still treating them as violent, a violent threat. He's willing to uphold the Checker Corporation's arrangement. With the Pajali government, right? Very entrenched, very much running the show in a lot of ways. Um, and the main reason he's there is to, well, to, to ensure that the uh, you know, Avaros calls calls them. He's there to ensure that the family's coronation and the constitutional regime change happens smoothly. And a big part of that is for Cherka's uh, claims on the new trade routes that are opening up. Right. He he's still willing to be embedded in 
these economics and politics of the galaxy, uh, at least for the time being. Um, now, now that's uh, an example of restraint. I don't think it's an example of for Qui Gon. I don't think it's an example of him. An example of him going along and being a pawn. Corgan doesn't choose to be a pawn. This is my point here: is he might suspect that things should be otherwise. He might, uh, you, know, you know, he he might suspect that Chaka is being corrupt. And uh, you know, that, that they should be opposed, but you know, he's still in the game and at least restrained enough, at least to know that he doesn't know enough yet. Yeah, at the very least, right? He's he's aware that he'd need more information, more proof. Um, he's there. He understands his role on behalf of the Jedi Council and the, the Chancellor. We even see that in episode one, where he's there again at the behest of the Chancellor and the Council um, to support a peace process and uh, negotiate an end to the Trade Federation blockade, right? But here's the thing if he does suspect that Cherka is ultimately nefarious, and surely he disagrees with their use of slavery, he's, pick, he's picking his battles. He's holding his cards close to his chest. Okay. Now, how is that prophetic? Again, I've raised this, I just raised this problem, right? He's not a pawn, but, you know, at least so far as I've gone, and to some extent we see in episode one, you know, it could have gone the way of, uh, come on, your highness, just sign this treaty. And there'll be some semblance of peace here on, you know, to benefit the Trade Federation, right? He could have done that, but that's just not in his character. He's still a prophet. How is that prophetic, though? In my preaching class, <laughs> let's go there. Um, we brought up the question, how do we preach a challenging word? How do we... We see in scripture a prophetic passage, and uh, you know, especially in our day and age where people are very nice and well, not hopefully, not so much anymore, but I have often thought everything's hunky dory and fine, and there aren't really much growing areas or aren't really willing to listen to that, right. Um, how do we communicate otherwise? Because the scripture tells us otherwise, right? There's always room for reform and change and growth. Um, this pandemic has definitely made that hopefully a lot clearer to us. But the question is, you know, if we just come out guns a-blazing into the pulpit, people are going to shut it down and shut off. That's just going to not do any good. How do we communicate this so people can hear what we have to say? And the, uh, the, the quote that my prof brought up, it was this wonderful quote from Eugene Peterson, 
So you gotta tell it slant. And I think that comes from from jazz. I think where uh, well, I mean, kind of like the blue notes and the rhythm is a little off, but there's still a good groove there. Um, you have to you know, with, with humor, with charm. And especially with humility, as I brought up before, communicate it in ways that bring people alongside. I think exact. I think very clearly of um, presiding Bishop Michael Curry's sermon at uh, Harry and Meghan's wedding, and people criticized that for I'm talking about love as just a feeling or whatever, and, and and that's not what he what he says. He actually does say love is a sacrificial covenant. Marriage is a sacrificial covenant and a deep commitment to giving of yourself. But he says it in such a a fun, joyful way that reveals the fun, joyful thing that it is. Um, as someone who is himself struggling to live it because as a human being and as a Christian, you know, we all struggle to live it, right? And Michael Curry would be the first person to tell you that this is the struggle and the journey to to show love to our neighbors, to his spouse, to his family, uh, to everyone he interacts with. You see, the goal of prophecy isn't to bash your own head against a brick wall, right? If that's all you end up doing, they're just going to, hurt yourself and nobody's going to pay attention to you. The goal of prophecy is to create real change. Right? That's the funny thing, you know. Um, Isaiah announced this people of the rebellion, hearing, right? they have ears but they cannot hear, eyes but they cannot see. Um, even the, the doom of exile and the doom of the Jedi exile, uh, you know, we hope that doesn't happen. We hope that um, we we hope that a pandemic doesn't actually overrun uh, our society right, and our world. But when it does, can we actually hear with compassion and joy that there is hope? as we come together and we support each other, we build infrastructure, institutions and uh, labor institutions and healthcare institutions that actually protect against what may come next. But we got to do it with compassion and calm. And, you know, for Qui-Gon, still doing it with the institutions as corrupt and fallen as they can be. Um, you know, Qui-Gon, you know, at this point in, in the novel, at least, the biggest examples of him still playing the game is that he's still basically certain that he'll accept a seat on the Jedi Council. Right? He uh, says, okay, you know, he's wrestled with the temptation to the honor of it, but at the very least, he still says, okay, I'm going to, the thing I talked about last week, right? Uh, it may be a trap just to keep him in line. That may be what Yoda and Mace Windu and the rest are thinking, right? If we get him on the council, he, he has to keep playing the game. 
he knows his duty and his responsibility. He's not going to, like, the slant is going to just turn and just flatten. Um, even if he sees that it is a trap, he's still convinced, at this point in the book at least, that it's the best way to affect the kinds of reforms he wants to make. Right? Reforms he's been calling for, such as where Padawans get trained. Big reform that he could do as a member of the Jedi Council. You know, instead of being Elijah to the hopelessly foregone Ahab, he, for a moment there, envisions himself as Nathan to David and Solomon. Right? Nathan, even going in, this is a great example of telling us that. This is a perfect example. Is Nathan going in front of David, was just looked down at Bathsheba and says, I want her to come to me. And uh, Uriah, saying Uriah, go off to be killed. And this great scandal and sin and stain on David's whole lineage and life. And Nathan comes in, he says, could have said, you did this, stop it, <laughs> repent. No, instead he says, a farmer looked out, a rich farmer looked out on a poor farmer and stole his sheep. And that raises David's ire. He says, how dare that guy? He'd better pay. Then Nathan pulls the bait and switch and says, nope, that's you. <laughs> and, and David is enough of, you know, a man after God's own heart, so to speak, right? He's able to actually hear that and his conscience is really pricked and he's able to repent. Um, you know, Qui-Gon for a moment envisions himself as being in that role and envisions people who will hear. Um, he's possibly even inspired by Rail's presence with Fenry, right? A central part in the royal court in a position to guide the next generation, be it a queen or Padawans, to pursue peace and wisdom in the galaxy. So he sees this, this summons to join the council, not as an opportunity, or as an opportunity, not just for prophetic words, but for prophetic action on the on the part of the council itself. Let me say that again. I want to clarify. He sees it as an opportunity not just for prophetic words, but for prophetic action. Right? We have churches and institutions talking about prophetic action on the part of the council itself. Of course, we know that it doesn't go that way. He declines his seat. But the fact remains that he's open to the possibility. And that fact alone suggests that, or, or shows us how he sees restraint as an important tool in his prophetic toolbox. He just waits until he dies to use the specific tool that is a council seat because he's not the one to do it. Like David wasn't the one to build the temple, right? I mean, Nathan himself comes and declares, you know, you're not going to build the temple. Or, or, or David has the sense, no. It's going to be passed on to the next generation. And it's Qui-Gon's Padawan. It keeps coming up as I read this book. I think about the future of the Skywalker saga. Well, Qui-Gon's Padawan is the one who becomes a great Jedi Master. Who is able to bend but not break. And who is able to ultimately pass his own spark of wisdom onto Luke Skywalker in his dying moments, 
and beyond. Um, you know, he doesn't, I, I shouldn't say play the game. The game is, is a toolbox for possible prophetic change. So this has been episode 61 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I hope uh, it was clear what I'm getting at. Um, going to keep going on with Master and Apprentice. Definitely appreciating and enjoying what the insights this book has brought. Again, I do hope High Republic delves into similar things to this depth. Maybe not so much about prophecy, but uh, about matters of faith and society and culture. Uh, let me know what you thought of tonight's episode. Um, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at NEUG485, on Instagram at MNEUG1138. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you, always. <laughs>